with the first two confirmed cases of person-to-person transmission of the coronavirus in Australia. And as I mentioned, a plan with tens of millions of dollars. So everyone's hanging out for a vaccine and lots of research groups around the world are having a go. quarantined on Christmas Island over concerns about the COVID-19 coronavirus. This is not a drill, this is the real thing. Coronavirus. COVID-19. Coronavirus. The coronavirus. As COVID-19 coughed its way out of Wuhan, we were all shocked by the speed of its transmission, the underprepared medical systems left rocking in its wake, perhaps most of all by the ugly reminder that, for all our technological advances, we are still a mammal and we still get sick. (coughs) The media is also a bit unwell, gripped in the throes of a pandemic fever. Unhelpful headlines ring with authority. COVID-19 will change consumerism forever, will change our psychology, our teeth and our politics. COVID-19 will change us as a species. COVID-19 will change everything. Of course, that's one way of looking at it. How to Be a Mammal attempts to tackle this approach in the throat, pin it to the floor, and give it a good shake. I want to recenter our view of the pandemic and what it means for us both as individuals and as the sweating, eating, laughing, defecating, weird little creature that we all are. An ape with an oversized head that thinks we run the show. That coronavirus will change things is a given. What I want is for you to take the wheel. In our isolation, we have been granted an unusual and wonderful gift. The ability to reshape our relationships, our sense of space and our place within it, and to reconnect with an old and ancient animal that we have forgotten, but not lost. My name's David Barnock Clement. Let me show you how to be a mammal. You know, there's no better place to spend isolation than somewhere far from people. You can't feel lonely when there is no one to miss. In the bush, you are swallowed up by the silence, and you return to your roots in more ways than one. I sleep when it's dark, I wake when it's light, and I listen to the birds. It all sounds rather wishy-washy, doesn't it? But when was the last time you went to bed after sundown and got up to watch the sun rise? How often do you sit outside and do nothing but listen to the birds? chatting in the undergrowth. In the history of our species, Homo sapiens, we did things like this far more than contemporary living allows. It's an interesting thought that even as we have become increasingly wealthy in a material sense, the house, the computer, the car, we have become increasingly detached from the things that make us happy. So, where have we come from and how did we get here? When it comes to our family tree, we could go pretty far back, potentially 3.8 billion years back. But in the name of expediency, we'll skip the sludge and slime and fast forward to the Cambrian explosion about 500 million years ago. This was not an explosion as such, but was when, for the very first time, we started to see life forms on the fossil record that you'd probably recognise as an animal. From here, if you skip the details, in fact nearly every detail, the evolutionary chain towards us looks something like this. After the invertebrates of the Cambrian explosion, we get vertebrates, so organisms with a backbone, and then fish. Fish become amphibians, amphibians become reptiles, and reptiles more or less split into mammals on one side and birds on the other.
Let's fast forward. It's now 200 million years ago and the Triassic is wrapping up fast. A huge chunk of rock has just face planted off the coast of modern day Mexico and the world has been thrust into a nuclear winter. This is the point where the dinosaurs kick the bucket. Rather handily, this is also when those proto-mammals develop warm-bloodedness. So, the dinosaurs have been assigned to the extinction chair in the corner, but when do humans jump into the spotlight? Well, the very first primates didn't appear until 55 million years ago, and Homo erectus, our very first hunter-gatherer ancestor, only began to hunt and gather at the earliest 1.8 million years ago. So just to make the transition from hooting and swinging in the trees to grunting and walking on two legs took the best part of 53 million years. Finally, Homo sapiens, that's us, muscle our way onto the scene at 200,000 years before present. A little bit later we had the whole language thing down pat, we were using complex hunting methods and loved a good cave painting. Even then we didn't develop agriculture till 10,000 years ago and couldn't ride for another 5,000 years. To make this a bit easier, let's use the good old clock model. Say the history of the planet was a 24-hour clock, and we, right now, are currently at midnight. Those 200,000 years of Homo sapiens, of us, would be worth a grand one second. The entire history of our species has occurred within one second to midnight, and we have only been reading and writing for one fortieth of this second. If this makes reading and writing sound short-lived, what about the internet? The World Wide Web, Wi-Fi and broadband is now a fact of life. There are plenty of kids who've never even heard a dial-up tone. For those children, the way we live is normal and natural. But as an animal, as a member of Homo sapiens, we are not normal. We are in fact plunging headfirst into uncharted territory where we spend more time looking at a screen than looking at each other. It's perhaps not surprising then, given just how new our lifestyle really is, that our bodies, minds and emotions are geared for a more ancient way of life. Hello? Hello, Sam. Hi David, nice to meet you. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yeah, 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 you're coming through nice and clear. Okay, that's good. That is Dr. Sam Lin, a lecturer with the School of Earth, Atmospheric and Life Sciences at the University of Wollongong. He is also a member for the Centre for Archaeological Science and is an Associate Investigator in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage. He knows more than most about our ancient past. And so I'm an archaeologist. Uh, my interest really lies in so trying to understand how humans have uh, interacted with the environment uh, and, and particularly uh, in terms of the, the way they make decisions about how, where they go, what they do at different places, uh, the different timings of activities, and really using that as a way to look at how humans have evolved over time, over the course of human evolution. Um, and I do that mainly through the study of stone artifacts. And why are stone artifacts so useful in terms of using them as a proxy for human evolution? Um, so stone artifacts are quite useful, uh, mainly because they don't decompose. Uh, so the way people make stone tools was that they would strike a stone with another piece of stone or something hard uh, to take a chip off. And the chip has sharp edges and you can use, use it for various things. And the thing is that once you make that chip uh, and it gets buried, it doesn't really go away. Um, and if we think about other kinds of remains that people might have left behind, a lot of it, it's organic. They don't really preserve that well. 
And so that's the reason number one. And the second reason really is that the process of making stone tools, once you start chipping stones, you start to make a lot of these chips. So there's no lack of material to study. So that's reason number two. And reason number three really is that if we think about the archaeological remains that people left behind, stone tools is probably the closest we will ever get to the actual behavior of people. What, at what point do we start seeing stone artifacts in the fossil record? So uh, this is quite a, a, a debated topic, partly because um, it's difficult to find the first stone tool. If we think about preservation, the chance of us identifying it, the chance of it being preserved. Um, so right now, the earliest stone tool that we have uh, dates to about 3.3 million years ago in East Africa. But that is debated. The more secure date for you know, the one that everyone accepts is about 2.6 about million years ago. So normally when we talk about it, uh, we put it in the range to 3 to 2.6 million years ago. It's probably where we start to see people uh, systematically making stone tools. What type of transition do we see between Homo erectus and Homo sapiens when they turned up on the scene 200,000 years ago or so? What's the main differences in stone tool manufacture between those two groups? Evolution stone tools, uh, it, it really, it's the major trend is the increased complexity in the way people make this. Um, and what uh, the evidence for that is the product they produce becomes more and more diverse and standardized in some forms. Um, the sequence of manufacture becomes more complex over time. Um, the technique people use becomes more diverse over time as well. And, but what's important to keep in mind is that the evolution of stone tools is not a, a linear trend. It's not a progression. It's more of an increase in variation. These early hominins were just striking stones, making these flakes with sharp edges. Over time, our ancestors seem to become more capable at coming up with different solutions to perhaps similar problems. So what we see is not really a, a optimization or, or linear progression. It's actually an increase in variation. So what we get is that when we get to these recent, what we call the Upper Paleolithic, or right before the Holocene, where modern humans, our species, were all over the world, right? We're in Africa and Europe, we're in Asia, all the way into the Americas. And people were making a whole range of different things. So. I think the takeaway message in terms of the technological evolution is that people probably became more flexible. People probably became more creative in the way they solve problems. What would like a general day in the life of um, an archaic hunter-gatherer look like? Right. Um, it's a hard question to answer. Um, of course, that is beyond the realm of scientific archaeology and it's, it's into the realm of sort of imagination. Um, but I think one thing that, uh, so, so I think in terms of the general lifestyle, I guess, and again, we, we draw a lot uh, of, of these interpretations from living hunter-gatherers. Australia plays a big role. And the main thing that conditions uh, hunter-gatherers is the distribution of, of resources, where things are, where the food, where the plants, where the animals, um, at what time of the year do they show up, where do they show up, when is the wet season? When is the dry season? When, when is water available? And a big part of hunter-gatherers is they're, they're mobile. So they're moving around. But they're not moving around constantly. They, were, they have base camps that they, they live. 
uh, camp. And then they move that base camp from time to time, uh, depending on the where the resources are. So I would say people are mobile. Mobility is, is a big part of being a prehistoric human. Knowing the land is a big part of, of being a hunter-gatherer. And we see this time and time again in ethnographic documentations where they, they are really familiar with information that's being told by nature, by around them. Things that they're signs where resources are. And they have different ways of passing down that information. Like in Australia, a big part of the dream time, the dreaming is, in a way, having these informations embedded in stories that's being told through generations. So by learning those stories, you're in a way learning the ecological map of your country. By knowing landmarks on the landscape, by knowing where resources occur, you know, certain trees, certain plants grow close to rivers, where would the river be, what that hill means. And they become in, intertwined with cultural knowledge. This is where it becomes really difficult as a Western scientist to to interpret human behavior as an objective thing, because human behavior is never divorced from culture. This, it seems, is what it means to be an ancient hunter-gatherer, a mammal. We used to be constantly mobile, embedded in the environment around us, to the extent that ecology became mythology, and nature was the key thread holding together our shared cultural fabric. How things have changed. Now, if you recognise that tune, you're probably over a certain age, although I'll not be the one to put a number on it. It's from the Fred Flintstone cartoon, a favourite caveman from TV, dressed up in all his leopard print glory. It turns out, however, that Fred only belongs on TV. The whole caveman thing, it just didn't happen. It's kind of an interesting point. Um, we have this idea of a caveman, and partly that comes from a lot of archaeological sites we find uh, are in caves. But if we think about animals in general, or primates, our closest living cousins, uh, not many animals actually live in caves. And it would be really strange if humans spend a lot of time in caves. And I don't know if you've been to a cave. Caves are not nice places. They're dark and damp. You know, they're weird things living in there. Um, so, and, and especially when we think about the hunter-gatherer groups that, that are still currently living or, or recently, um, none of them live in caves. So it's quite an intriguing question. And personally, I don't think they did. Um, personally, I think people are probably out in the landscape um, where the resources are. They are where the fresh water is, where the animals are, where the plants are. They might come to caves from time to time for shelter uh, because we do find archaeological remains, fireplaces at caves. But perhaps a reason why we have this such a focus on caves is because that's where things preserve. Imagine you, you're eating a candy and then you throw the wrapper as you're taking a walk. The chance of that wrapper being buried and preserved at the place where you threw it, it's pretty low. Because there's so many other things going on. There's rain, there's wind, things, and someone might come and pick it up for whatever reason. But if we think about a cave where people repeatedly came back to that place, things get thrown in that cave has a higher chance of being preserved. So perhaps what we're seeing, this caveman narrative, 
is a reflection of the general preservation of archaeological materials. And, and not saying people didn't live in caves, but uh, people probably spent a lot more time outside of the cave rather than in caves. And before I let Sam go, I asked him to trial a new interview method. I'm currently giving a shot. He did a brilliant job and ran the gauntlet with what can only be described as panache. Apple. Orange. Winter. Summer. COVID. 19. Job. Work. Animal. Uh, mammals. Time. Space. Survival. Adaptation. Flower. Seat. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. It's clear we're animals. If what we just learned from Sam didn't point it out, then our current circumstances certainly do. If COVID-19 has taught us anything, it's that viruses don't care if you speak, howl, grunt or move. So far, the best defence we've had against this pandemic is to stay at home. It's not really king of the jungle stuff, is it? But we're more than animals, we're mammals. What's the difference? Well, all mammals produce milk to feed their young, have hair or fur, have a unique jaw structure and are warm-blooded. It's the type of stuff that makes you more likely to scratch a dog under the chin than tickle a snake or high-five a fish. There are also three different groups of mammals, the monotremes, marsupials, and the placentals. Monotremes lay eggs and are only found here, down under. It's just the platypus and four species of echidna that are left. Then you've got the marsupials, mammals that give birth but to poorly developed young and usually nurse them in pouches. Old mate Skippy fits in here. Placental mammals, which include you and me, are much more developed when we're born. I know that human babies can seem a bit wanting, but think of a foal. That thing is skittish and suckling within half an hour of popping out a mum. And to put things into perspective, a kangaroo, when it's born, is about the size of a jelly bean, which is a fair bit smaller than you or I were, something I'm sure my own mother will attest to. Strangely enough, we also have more in common genetically with a whale than we do a kangaroo. What a weird and wonderful world we live in. One thing that does unite humans, kangaroos and whales, however, is the fact that we have an immune system. (laughs) That would be why. (laughs) How you doing, man? Good. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. Just um, they've been bouncing back and forward with journals for like the last, man, must be at least two months. The life so of the researcher. Journal now. The end result will be good. Like, yeah. It's just, I think everyone in micro is just flooded with COVID papers at the moment. So like no one really cares about what we research. <laughs> not that they, they don't find it interesting. It's just that, like, it's just not the hot topic and they haven't got room for it. Yeah. Swamped by COVID in every way. Mm, yeah, yeah, totally. For the record, I already know this guy. We teach a science subject together. His name is Jonathan Williams. He's a fourth-year PhD candidate at the University of Wollongong and works with the Illawarra Health and Medical Research Institute. I'm in a group that focuses around uh, what we call Group A Streptococcus or Streptococcus pyogenes. And it's responsible for a number of different infections. Um, it's a very genetically diverse pathogen and for this reason it's very very interesting it causes diseases such as you may be common with strep throat uh, so pharyngitis 
as well as impetigos like school sores, but it also causes a lot of um, nasty invasive infections, um, including one we call necrotizing fasciitis or the flesh-eating disease. And what fights flesh-eating diseases? It's the immune system. Yeah, so as you can probably imagine, the immune system is pretty complex, but I think you can sort of break it down into maybe like three aspects. And it's essentially designed to just protect the human body from pathogens. Any sort of foreign body that comes into uh, contact with internal sort of sterile components, uh, your body wants to have a a warning and a defense mechanism against these things because they can potentially cause harm. So what are the three aspects of our immune system? The physical aspect is like your your skin, so physical barrier from anything in the outside world. And then you've got mucus and saliva and openings in your body that uh, go to the inside of your body. So like your nostrils, your ears, you've got earwax, all things like that. They protect you and catch anything that may go from the outside world into the, into the internal of your body. And that physical like sort of gate really, really helps reducing infection. Then when you move into the body, you've got the two arms of the what we call the immune system. So the uh, innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. But um, we'll start with the innate immune system. And this is a, a non-specific response. It's very fast acting. Uh, it can respond to anything, but it's not necessarily looking for a specific sign of one particular bacteria or virus or protein or anything like that. It can uh, respond to a cut, can respond to bacteria getting into your lungs, into your nose, into your stomach, all of these things. Whereas you've got the adaptive immune system, which is more of a long-term sort of response So your adaptive immune system is uh, responsible for building up a longer-term response to an invading pathogen that may um, persist for a longer period of time. Uh, So this is to do with antibody production. So adaptive immunity is what's used when you've been infected by something that your body hasn't seen before and it needs to come up with an immune response. Yeah, so both. It can respond to new and um, reoccurring infections. Uh, in the sense that your adaptive immune system sort of finds something on the invader and uh, makes a copy of it. So what we call an antigen, which is a molecule or structure that's present on a pathogen, so anything that's not part of the, the body and is a foreign substance that's made its way into the inside of the body is what we call an antigen. And this antigen is what the adaptive immune system will recognize. So then it can tag it which then make that either bacteria, virus, or protein targeted for removal from the system. Um, and like I said, it can respond to both recurring and new pathogens. Generally speaking, the recurring infections will have a much quicker response because your body has this memory and a memory bank, uh, whereas a new antigen that's entered the body will take a much longer period of time um, and the response will be a lot slower. Okay, so when you get a flu jab or a vaccination or anything like that, all it's doing is introducing your body to a new antigen so that in the future, if you do get infected, it's not that you're not going to get sick, it's just that your immune response can act quicker to that infection. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So with the like immunizations, generally you have a weakened form 
um, or like a form of the virus or any sort of pathogen that can't actually cause disease or causes minimal disease. Um, and you'll get injected with that into your body to initiate an immune response via the adaptive immune system. They copy uh, whatever that antigen is that you've been injected with and sort of put it in their library of antigens that they can respond to really quickly. So let's say I have a splinter. It's busted through my thumb. It's broken that all-important physical barrier. And I now have a great hunk of wood sticking into my bloodstream and causing an infection. What happens next? I suppose you want to you seal the hole. So it depends whether you pull the piece of wood out or not. But you've got clotting factors that will try and seal the hole and that will block it. So that forms a blood clot that seals the system up again. However, you'll get this process called inflammation. And inflammation is your body signaling to the immune system that some damage has occurred. So damage has occurred, we need some help. In particular, skin cells, when they get damaged or broken, such as the splinter going in, they'll send out what they call cytokine signals. So these are like small molecules that will travel through your system, indicating that this area needs attention from immune cells. And the first immune cells that will be there will be your innate immune response. So non-specific cells that will respond and just remove anything that they identify as a threat. And what type of cells are doing this? The cells that I study, uh, these are called neutrophils. These are uh, non-specific innate immune cells. They're the most abundant cell that circulate in blood. Um, and they're very short-lived. So these are like really dangerous to invading pathogens as they contain a lot of toxic molecules. And the way they do this is uh, through a number of different methods. So they either release uh, molecules that help the degradation of these invading pathogens. They can uh, release what's called like a, a net. So it literally is like a spider's web that's released out and sort of catches these pathogens in their trap. And also they use a process called phagocytosis. And this is a process where the cells actually consume the pathogen inside and then degrade them uh, once they're inside the cell using a number of different enzymes. So let's say I'm sick, I have a temperature, a fever, maybe a headache. Is what I'm feeling the actual pathogen having an impact on my body or is that just my body responding to the pathogen? Generally speaking, um, the responses we see from people getting sick are actually your body, it's your immune system responding. Fever is one of those things that gets initiated by the immune system to actually try and remove the invading pathogen, so increasing the body's temperature to make it harder to function, as well as like the swelling we see at sites of, um, say, a splinter going into your skin. And the pain that we feel is actually the pressure of cells actually rushing there. You're actually feeling all these immune cells going to the area and trying to respond. Like all other mammals, we've got an immune system and it does a pretty good job of keeping us healthy. But before we wrap up the first episode of How to Be a Mammal, I thought I would spend a little time getting us up to date on viruses because it's a virus that hundreds of thousands of people and their immune systems are currently tackling around the world. So, what are these buggers? The first thing you need to know is they are super small. I mean, they're tiny, typically less than one micrometer in size. For context, the diameter of a red blood cell is about 10 times smaller than the width of a human hair. 
and viruses can get up to 300 times smaller than a red blood cell. They are also weirdly simple in their construction. They're pretty much just pieces of genetic information wrapped up in a protein coat. They have none of the mechanisms that allow other pathogens, such as bacteria, to reproduce or move around. So if a virus can't reproduce copies of itself, how does it spread? Well, <laughs> that's where we come in. Viruses invade and take over cells in our body, turning them into little virus factories. Get enough infected people pumping out copies of a virus and we end up where we are today. Funnily enough, viruses don't even make the grade when it comes to technically being classified as something that's alive. They are, however, pretty good at getting around. We are mammals. Our mammalian heritage extends back about 200 million years. We used to live in the environment like a mammal. We have an immune system like a mammal. And most definitely, we get sick like a mammal. And here we are, the most destructive apex predator the world has ever seen, kept inside by a tinsy capsule of protein and RNA. There's a wonderful irony to the fact that we are currently living more like cavemen today than our hunter-gatherer ancestors probably ever did. Next time, technology. Our saving grace during the pandemic or our downfall. How monopoly can improve your relationships with your family and how social isolation may not be as lonely as you think. You can find How To Be A Mammal on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch, visit my website, howtobeamammal.com. It would be great to hear from you. My name's David Barnett-Clement. Till next time.